We continue this morning our consideration of this great prayer that the Apostle Paul offers for the members of the church at Ephesus, which is to be found in the third chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians, beginning at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he adds, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We are still considering the 17th verse, this petition in which he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now we've been looking at this great statement. In general, we've considered its nature in general. And we have observed, and I must repeat this because it's so important that the Apostle offers this prayer for all the members of the church at Ephesus, not for certain people only, but for all. And he goes on to say that they may be able to comprehend with all saints what is this great love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And uh, therefore, I come back to it in order that once more we may deal with it in a more practical sense. There can be no question about this proposition, that we are looking here at the greatest thing that can ever confront a human being. Here we are shown the possibilities for a Christian in this life and in this world. This is, in a sense, true Christianity. Let's be clear about that. I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian without being in this position. But we are very poor Christians unless we are in this position. This is what we are meant to be. This is what is possible for us. And therefore, surely nothing is more important for us than to know how we may arrive at this position. How we may know whether Christ does dwell in us and how we may be enabled to enjoy that supreme privilege and that greatest source of joy. Now, the hymn that we've just been singing reminds us of the possibility, but let me again remind you of something of what this means. Let me read to you the testimony of a man who knew what it was to have Christ in his heart. If I may use such a term, I do this in order to whet your appetites in order that we may remind ourselves that we are not doing something theoretical here. We are talking about something that has been a fact 
realized in the life of large numbers of God's people in all ages, in all centuries, in all places, in spite of and irrespective of all theological differences, you find that there is a common testimony to this great experience of Christ in the heart. But I take this morning as my example and illustration. Uh, Charles Wesley. This is the sort of thing a man is enabled to say when Christ dwells in his heart. I'm going to read you, it's in our hymn book, fortunately, hymn number 471. Thou hidden source of calm repose, thou all-sufficient love divine, my help and refuge from my foes, secure I am if thou art mine, and lo, from sin and grief and shame, I hide me, Jesus, in thy name. Thy mighty name, salvation is, and keeps my happy soul above. Comfort it brings, and power and peace, and joy and everlasting love. To me, with thy dear name, are given pardon and holiness and heaven. Jesus, my all in all thou art, my rest in toil, my knees in pain, the medicine of my broken heart. In war my peace, in loss my gain, my smile beneath the tyrant's frown, in shame my glory and my crown, in want my plentiful supply, in weakness mine almighty power. In bonds, my perfect liberty, my light in Satan's darkest hour, my help and stay whene'er I call, my life in death, my heaven, my all. Now, the simple question that I put to you is this. Is that your experience? Can you adopt those words and use them? Is Christ like that to us? That's the question. Now, that is what happens when Christ dwells in the heart. You notice the intimacy of the relationship. You notice the fullness of the satisfaction. Christ is his all and in all, is his everything. Whatever his circumstances and conditions, here is always the answer. This relationship to Christ, this knowledge of Christ, it's experimental experiential, if you like. It isn't something held in the mind only. It isn't theory. He did find Christ his complete satisfaction. He has proved that the words of our Lord himself are true when he said that if any men went unto him, he would never hunger. If any men believed in him, he would never thirst. This is the well of water within, springing up into everlasting life. The promise is of a complete satisfaction. And here it is verified in the experience of a man like Charles Wesley. Now that, I say, is essential Christianity. That is what you and I are offered. And it is to the extent that we know that experience and can testify to it, that we are likely to attract others to the Christian faith. Men and women, after all, are entitled to watch us and to observe us. 
We make this tremendous claim that, done as, that God has done a unique thing, that he sent his only son into the world. We believe in the incarnation, in the power of the Spirit, and so on. But the question is, what does it lead to in practice? And if as Christian people we appear to be miserable, and if in times of stress and trial and of strain we seem to have no consolation, well, the world is fully entitled to ask, what's the value of your Christianity? What is there in it after all? And in a time and in an age like this, when so many hearts are failing people, they look to us, and I say, therefore, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of God and his glorious salvation, for the sake of the Son of God who came and endured so much that we might come to this position, it behoves us to see that we do know it and that we are manifesting it in our daily lives. That, I say, brings us to this most practical and essential question. How does this become possible? I know that I'm speaking to many who are saying at this moment, I'd give the whole world if I could only really use those words of Charles Wesley honestly. Very well. Here is the answer. How does this become possible? The apostle's answer, you notice, is by faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Or if you prefer it, through faith. But now it's extremely important that we should be clear as to the meaning of that phrase. Because it's a phrase that is very frequently misunderstood. Or if you like, we can take it at the same time in terms of that picture uh, which we glanced at a fortnight ago in Revelations 3.20. Uh, Christ says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open, I will enter in and will sup with him and he with me. That uh, addressed, you remember, to the church of the Laodiceans, a message to Christian believers. Now, what is opening the door? That's the question. What is, by faith, what is opening the door? Now, in an attempt to answer this question in a thoroughly practical manner this morning, I would start by saying again that we must Start with verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now, without that, we can do nothing. That is ever always the starting point. This is something that a man in and of himself is incapable of. He just cannot do it. So the apostle puts that in the first position. But here, I say, a certain danger arises. And it is, of course, a danger which has afflicted many people in this way. Because of this emphasis and stress upon the primary work of the Holy Spirit, the danger is to say, well, very well. That means then, I take it, that you and I can do nothing. And we simply remain passive and wait for something to happen to us and we go on expecting that something will take place. But that, of course, is an entire fallacy. The truth about this matter is expressed once and forever, it seems to me, in the epistle to the Philippians in the second chapter, verses 12 and 13, where the apostle puts it like this. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his <coughs> good pleasure. Now there you notice the, the, the right balance and the right sequence. He puts it as an exhortation, almost as a command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is the indicative. There is something that you and I have got to do. Yes, but you notice he adds, for it is God that worketh in you. That's just putting it the other way around from what we have here, but really saying the same thing. Were it not for the fact that God works in us both to will and to do, we could never do anything at all. Our wills, as we've seen, need to be stimulated and to be strengthened, and we need the power. Very well. God has promised to do that. He works in us both to will and to do. And because he does that, you and I now work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So all this emphasis upon the 16th verse does not teach us a kind of passivity in which we just wait and do nothing at all. Very well, having said that, the apostle goes on to say that this, therefore, is something now which happens by faith. The Holy Spirit, we have prayed that he will strengthen us with his glorious power in the inner man. Very well, as a result of that, we are now able to receive Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith. And here we come to this crucial question. What is this by faith or through faith? Now, it is here, again, that we come across a, a type of teaching, which, if I understand these matters at all, uh, has uh, stumbled many and has kept them uh, from a living experience of what we are considering. By faith does not mean, to use the current phrase, take it by faith. Now, you're familiar with that teaching which uh, comes to you and says about this or any other experience in the Christian life, it says it's quite simple. There's no difficulty at all. You just take it by faith. You just open the door to Christ and he's in. And then, though you may feel nothing at all, you say, well, of course, the word says, if you open the door, I will enter in. Well, I open the door and he enters. Well, there it is. I feel nothing at all. But it doesn't matter, they say. It doesn't matter what you feel. You just go on now assuming that he has come in because he says he will. It's quite simple. You take it by faith. Now, that seems to me to be completely wrong. And indeed, I do not hesitate to assert that there is no type of teaching that can be so dangerous to the soul as just that. And for this reason, that is surely nothing but a kind of self-persuasion. That is just to, to put into practice a psychological principle of auto-suggestion. And it's so wrong in this connection for this reason. That we are not dealing here with an influence, we are dealing with a person. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You see, when a man like Charles Wesley writes that hymn, he's not persuading himself. He's writing his experience. That is how Christ was to him. He didn't sort of win, have no feelings whatsoever. He wasn't just left to himself and then have to persuade himself that, things, that these things are so. No, no. What he says is this. You are the medicine of my broken heart. You are my perfect liberty when I am in bonds. 
And it was true to him in his experience. He's not persuading himself of something. He's experiencing this something. And that, as we saw in the quotations I gave you last Sunday morning, has always been the experience of God's people. This is not something that you have to assume or to take it for granted and go on in a kind of blind faith. No, thank God it isn't that. It's a reality, a living reality. The Apostle Paul isn't speaking in hyperbole when he says to me to live is Christ. It was true. And when he adds, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, it was a fact in his experience. Therefore, I say we must be very careful about this teaching about take it by faith, and in any case. There is nothing which is so misleading as to say that it's quite simple. Some people use that illustration, you remember. They say there's the room with the blinds drawn, and it's in a state of darkness, though there's brilliant sunshine outside. They say it's quite simple. All you have to do is to let up the blind, and the sunshine comes streaming in. And we are told that it's as simple as that. But that leaves many people in perplexity. They say, I've been doing that for years. I've been trying to do that. I've believed it's quite simple, but it doesn't seem to happen. I haven't got this experience. And the answer is, of course, that it is not quite simple. Faith is not something simple in that way. That is auto-suggestion. That's a kind of believism. Faith, as I want to try to show you, is something much more active than that. So if you will read the biographies of God's people who have known what it is to have Christ in their hearts by faith, you will find that not one of them says it's quite simple. You will find that many of them, indeed most of them, have had a long process of seeking and of searching and of almost becoming desperate and of almost giving up in despair. But they've gone on and they've sought and they've struggled and then they have become aware that Christ is in truth and in fact dwelling within them. Therefore, I say the last thing I am urging is that this is something quite simple. And you just take it on uh, as the word, as it were, and open the door and Christ has come in and all is well. But the question is, is all well? Is this your experience? So that, having shown you that that negative treatment of the subject is quite wrong, let me come to the positive. What is this by faith? Now, it seems to me that we can do nothing better than to take the description we are given of this in that great chapter, the 11th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, which was written specially in order to give us an account and a description of what the life of faith really is. It isn't something passive we shall find. It isn't a kind of auto-suggestion. It isn't something which is quite simple. No, no. You read the lives of those men and you'll see that it wasn't simple, but it's very true. Well, what is it? Well, it is, I say, primarily and essentially an activity. Fortunately, the author sums it up for us in one verse. In the 13th verse of that 11th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, we are given this remarkable definition. These all, he says, he has been referring to a number of saints living in different centuries. These all, he says, died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them 
and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now then, let us take this definition which he gives us and apply it. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. What's it mean? Well, the first thing it means is this, that I must see this. Having seen these things afar off. In other words, I must recognize this thing. I must recognize the teaching and not just dismiss it. I must be arrested by it. You see, here were these men living their life in this world, even as you and I are doing, and a message came of something very different, something spiritual, something from God. And what's the truth about these men? Well, they saw it. Nobody else saw it. The other people, in fact, ridiculed it. Look at the men like Noah, for instance. He heard the message that was given that God was going to destroy the world. He saw it, and he did something about it. Nobody else did. And they ridiculed him for building his ark. They laughed at him. The thing seemed to be monstrous. Ah, the thing that differentiates the Christian from everybody else is that he sees something. And the vital question for us at this moment is this. Do we see this possibility? Or do we say, ah, but... uh, This is some sort of mysticism. This is some sort of enthusiasm or of fanaticism. I believe in being a Christian, says the man, and I believe in holding this truth in general in my mind and living a certain type of life. But ah, you're now leading us surely into some dangerous realm where strange things may happen to us. Well, indeed I am. I am leading you into the realm of those great heroes of the faith. I'm leading you into the realm in which the Apostle Paul lived and the Apostles and these first Christians. But the point is that unless we see this and see it as a concrete reality, obviously, we shall never know it. We shall never experience it. But not only did these people see these things, they were persuaded of them. And I want to emphasize this. Because so many, when they read a passage like this and begin to get some understanding of it, once they begin to see it, they then avoid the whole thing by speaking in this way. Oh, they say, of course, I recognize the type of experience that you're describing. You've demonstrated it out of the scriptures. You've demonstrated it out of your hymn book. It's certainly been true of large numbers of people. But don't you think, says this person, that they're rather exceptional people? Isn't this something that only happens to a certain type and to a certain kind? Isn't this uh, something that's finally dependent upon one's makeup? There is the kind of person who's naturally mystical. And there's the other person who is more stolid and more ordinary, the more mundane type. Isn't this solely for a certain type of person? Now, I'm quite sure that I'm speaking what has been in the mind of many as I say that this morning. The devil has come and has suggested, well, it's a perfectly genuine experience, of course, but it was never meant for you. It isn't meant for everybody. Or it may come in this form. Ah, yes, of course, that's a very wonderful experience and I do like listening to it and reading about it. But, of course, it's obviously not meant for me. I'm a businessman. 
And I'm concerned with the affairs of this life, for I'm a professional man and I'm busy. I can see quite clearly that if I had nothing else to do but to spend my days in my study or just concentrating upon the Christian life if I became a monk or a hermit or an anchorite and could really give myself to the pursuit of this, I've no doubt it would be possible for me. But here I am immersed in business and affairs and all these problems. Surely it's quite impossible for me. Well, now the simple answer to that is that the Apostle Paul regarded it as a possibility for every one of these members of the Christian church in Ephesus. And uh, we are given to understand that these early Christians, the majority of them, were slaves, not their own masters at all, forced to work and to labor and to sweat, men who'd lacked education and knowledge and culture and preparation. Here were men immersed in the most sordid details of life, and yet the Apostle says this is possible for them. And it is absolutely essential that we should be persuaded about this thing. If you push it away and evade it by trying to explain that your position or your circumstances are such that it's not possible for you, of course you'll never know it. But you're utterly unscriptural. You are denying the apostles' teaching. And not only that, you are denying Christian experience in the church throughout the centuries. Now, I said in passing last Sunday morning that we must at all costs avoid that utterly false dichotomy which the uh, Roman Catholic Church and other forms of Catholicism indulge in. When we divide people into saints and those who are not saints, every single Christian is a saint. All the members of the church at Corinth were called to be saints. They're regarded as saints. We must reject this suggestion as of the very devil. This is possible for every one of us. As each one of us has the same salvation by the blood of Christ, we are given the same gift of life. We are meant to experience it the same, to live it the same, to die in the same knowledge, and to go to the same heaven. And, as I say, it is just a fact of history that the most ordinary kind of individual has had this blessed experience and has been able to testify to it. I'm more and more impressed by that. It is not confined to outstanding people. It is the common experience of the most ordinary as well as the extraordinary. Because, you see, finally, it does not depend upon anything in us but upon the Lord himself. And all we do is to believe in it to see it and to be persuaded of it. I do trust that I've made that abundantly clear because if we are not persuaded of it as a possibility for us, obviously we shall not seek it. But then you notice his next term. They saw it afar off, they were persuaded of it, and then they embraced it. You notice how each term takes us on from step to step. The moment these people were persuaded of this thing, they said, I'm going to lay hold on that. I want it. They embraced it. They began earnestly to desire this very thing. Now, this is the thing, of course, that our Lord put in the Sermon on the Mount in one of the Beatitudes. It's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed, he said, 
are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's embracing it, you see, hungering and thirsting. They've seen this thing at last. They've read this chapter many times, but it had never conveyed anything to them. At last they said, this is a living possibility. And then they're absolutely persuaded of it and for themselves. So they now begin to hunger and thirst. They're laying hold of it. And incidentally linking this with the last point, let me put it in this extremely simple and practical way. Are we too busy to be persuaded of and to embrace things that we want in this life and in this world? Have we no time at all to cultivate our interests and our tastes? Is a man, a businessman or a professional man who tells me that he's too busy to seek Christ in this way, is he as a young man too busy to seek a wife? Has he no time at all? Does he say, no, I haven't a spare moment? He finds ours. He makes time. And so we must do it with his embrace. Now let me give you again a very good statement of this. And this time I'm going to quote you another hymn. And this time I go to that saintly Dutchman, Terstegen, a man again who had experienced these things. Listen to him. This is how he puts it. Here is a man who's seen this. And he's not only seen it, he's persuaded, and now he embraces the thing. Thou hidden love of God, whose height, whose depth, unfathomed no man knows. I see from far thy beauteous light, inly I sigh for thy repose. My heart is pained, nor can it be at rest till it finds rest in thee. That's the embracing. You see, the man not only sees it as an intellectual possibility, it's a reality to him. He's persuaded and he's trying to embrace it. Tis mercy all that thou hast brought my mind to seek her peace in thee. Yet while I seek but find thee not, no peace my wandering soul shall see. Oh, when shall all my wanderings end? And all my steps to thee were ten. Let me put it as a question. Have you spoken like that? Have you known that kind of agony of soul? You've seen the possibility. And there you want it and you've sought it. And you're struggling and you're wandering after it. But you can't find it. And while you can't, there's no peace for you. You've seen it so clearly that you say, I'll never be happy again until I have that. That's the thing. That's the embracing. Terstegen, you notice, went through that process. He didn't find it very simple. He didn't say it's just like letting up the blinds and he comes flooded. It isn't just like opening the door and there it is. I take it by faith and all this. There's no glibness about this, my friends. None of these people who have experienced this have ever been glib. Forgive me for putting it like this. I sometimes feel that there are many people today who have taken so much by faith that they've got nothing. It's all talk, it's all words. Is this thing a reality in experience? Here's a man who had to struggle, he sought, he felt it seemed to be eluding him, and then he cries out in the agony of his soul, Oh, when shall all my wanderings end? 
Have you sought him like that? Have you tried to embrace the promise in that particular way and manner? It's a part of this process. But then I go on to his next term, which is a vitally important one. They saw it afar off, they were persuaded, they embraced, and then they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the world. In other words, this is, you see, the point at which they begin to act on it. And my dear friend, if we don't act on this and in this way, the whole thing is in vain. Believe me, it's not just a matter of opening a door glibly like that. No, no. You and I have got to do certain things. If this is to become a fact, the life of faith, they confessed. They did something. What was it? Well, you notice that their whole life and outlook was determined by this and was controlled by this. You read the story of every one of those men in the 11th of Hebrews. And you'll find that's the thing that characterized him. When Abram saw this, he left his country and he went out not knowing whither he was going. Why? Well, he'd seen this. He confessed, he acted. When Noah saw it, yes, he separated himself from others and began building the ark. Every one of them. We've got to act. Once we see this and are persuaded of it and embrace it, I say this becomes the controlling motive of our life. It becomes the biggest thing of all. We say, I want Christ and I'm going to give everything up as it were until I have him. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means this. The first thing we have to do is to keep this matter constantly in our mind. Shall I put a simple test to you? Has this been in your mind every single day since we considered it last Sunday? You may have been charmed by the possibility as I read those hymns to you. And you said as you sat here last Sunday, I want that. Have you said that every day this week? How difficult it is to keep things in the mind. You and I have got to do that. How do we do it? We read our Bibles. You go over this passage. You read similar ones. You keep on reading. Then you meditate upon it. You think about it. You deliberately cause your mind to turn to it. And then another very good way, as I'm illustrating to you, is to read the experiences of the saints. You get it in your hymn books. You needn't go any further. It's all there. You'll get it in the biographies of saintly men of God. Watch them. How they sought it. What they did about it. And as you do it, you'll be keeping it before your mind. Now I say that we have to do it deliberately. We have to take it up. And we have to cause our minds to dwell upon it. We have to be ruthless. And above all, of course, we have to remind ourselves of this possibility of this personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is the central thing. We are not talking about some it or some experience as such. We are talking about him, he in the heart, and the experience that flows out of our intimacy with him. So we have deliberately to say, now then, is Jesus Christ real to me? I believe on him, I've accepted the Christian faith. Yes, but do I know him like that? Can I speak as Wesley spoke? And so you go on questioning yourselves and holding it before you. That's the first and the most important matter. But let me hurry on. The next thing, I think it follows of necessity in a logical manner, doesn't it? We realize that certain things are 
quite incompatible with this. If Christ is in our hearts, well then certain other things cannot and must not be in our hearts. What are they? Well, I simply take you back again to 2 Corinthians 6, where the thing has been put for us perfectly once and forever. Listen. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Go back and look at the earlier questions. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What conquered hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. For he hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now there it is, you see. There's no need to argue about these things. These things are incompatibles. There is no conquer between Christ and Belial. If Christ is in my heart, there are certain things that have got to go out of my heart. He won't dwell with them. He's particular. He's the Son of God. He's absolutely holy and sinless. So that if we truly seek this and embrace it, we have to begin to take action in this respect. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world, says the Apostle John. You can't have the love of the Father and the love of the world at the same time. Therefore, if you want Christ in your heart, get rid of the world and its mind and its outlook and its actions and its behavior. All that has got to go out. But having got rid of all that, you will find another enemy still remains, and he's the most subtle of all, and that's self. If you simply go along and get rid of all those other things in your own strength, you'll be praising yourself. You'll be patting yourself on the back. You'll be imagining that you're wonderful. Self and Christ and self cannot dwell in the heart at the same time. If he is to occupy, I must go out. Here again we are aware of the danger. Many of the saints have testified to this. Let me give it to you in the experience of that great French saint, Theodore Monod. Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow that a time could ever be when I let the Saviour's pity plead in vain and proudly answered all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree, heard him pray, forgive them, Father, and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. He's a Christian now. It isn't all of self and none of, some of self and some of thee. Day by day his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, sweet and strong and ah, so patient, Brought me lower while I whispered less of self and more of thee. He's advancing. Higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, thy love at last hath conquered. Grant me now my supplication, none of self and all of thee. We know something about these stages, don't we? We know the subtlety of the devil. But I say that it's either Christ or self. While you and I are in control, Christ isn't in control. So not only do these things go out, self goes out as well. 
And then I say we not only recognize that all that has got to go, but we proceed to do it. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. It isn't quite simple, is it? It isn't just letting up the blinds, or just, no, no, you've got to be clearing out. Come out from among them, and get rid of these things. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. Having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You and I have got to do that. The Spirit is already strengthening us with might by his power in the inner men. But because he is, you and I have got to do this. Cleanse ourselves. We've got to get rid of these things. In other words, if you want Christ in your heart dwelling, well then I say, you've got to put into practice this exhortation. There is no other way. If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. They that are Christ, says Paul, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And Christ will never dwell in our hearts until we have done that. And then, of course, the next step is the step of prayer. We've got to realize still our utter dependence upon him. If you think that mutilating the flesh or doing the various other things that some of the mystics have done falsely is going to lead to this. It's a great mistake. We work with all our might, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but we must realize our utter dependence upon him. I come back again to Tostigan. Having realized what he needs, having failed to find it, this is how he goes on. Is there a thing beneath the sun that strives with thee, my heart, to share? Ah, tear it hence and reign alone, the Lord of every motion there. Then shall my heart from earth be free, when it hath found repose in thee. O O love, thy sovereign aid impart, to save me from low-thoughted care. Chase this self-will through all my heart, through all its latent mazes there. Make me thy duteous child that I, ceaseless, may Abba, Father, cry. Each moment draw my earth, my draw from earth away, my heart that lowly waits thy call. Speak to my inmost soul and say, I am thy love, thy God, thy all, to feel thy power. To hear thy voice, to taste thy love, be all my choice. Do you pray like that to him? That's hymn number 469. That's the prayer of a man who is truly embracing these things and confessing them. He spends his time in talking to Christ, in asking him to come. He's cleansing, he's purifying. He needs 
is the strength that Christ alone can give. So he pleads for it. He yearns for it. He asks him for it. He asks him to have mercy. Prayer. And finally, perseverance. Going on with it. Persisting like this, you'll have many discouragements. You may feel much worse than you did before. You may have visions of your own heart such as you'd never imagined. You may be going further from God as you think, but go on, I say. It's his process. He's leading you on. And we have his definite promise and assurance. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. This is his desire for us. But you see, knowing as he does that these other things have got to happen first, he leads us on. The first step generally in this mighty experience of Christ in the heart is that we are given a vision of the blackness of our hearts, the horror of self, and of the self-seeking life which daunts us and makes us feel utterly desperate, but that's exactly what he wants us to feel. It is only when we are utterly desperate and feel quite hopeless that we look to him and need this strengthening of the Spirit in the inner man and pray for it as we've never prayed before. And God answers the prayer. And the Holy Spirit so strengthens us and so works in us and so moves in us that we are able to will and to do and to prepare the place for the Lord Jesus Christ that he may fulfill his own promise I will manifest myself to you I will come and take up my abode in you I and the Father will dwell in you Amen